This idea of what is home and how you live in seemingly impossible places. When I do read something that is set in Montreal, it becomes part of the landscape of a story. It changes the city for me. It's one thing to move away, to say, it's too French, there aren't enough jobs, there are too many holes in the roads, what are people doing living this far north anyway? It's one thing to say, I can't stand the winters, they're too long, there's too much snow, who can live like this? Or to say, I'm moving to Toronto, everyone is moving to Toronto, it's better in Toronto, I hate Toronto, but I'm moving there anyway. But to up and die and leave this hole, this massive hole, bigger than the winter thaw on city streets, bigger than the chunks of concrete falling off the overpasses, bigger than the sinkhole that suddenly appeared on Avenue Guy the other day, the one a small truck fell through, that leaves people feeling bad. I don't even know where to begin to look for all of you, the ones who died and left this place empty. There are too many holes in the infrastructure in Montreal, apparently, and now we're starting to feel it. I'm starting to feel it. I'm Talia Rubin, and I am a poet and theater creator performer. I make mostly solo performance work. And I currently live in Montreal, and I'm from Montreal. So I was born here, grew up here, and then fled for a long time, and lived a long time in Australia. My name is Tom Abrey. I moved to Montreal when I was 19 in 1989 to go to McGill. And after I finished at McGill, I stayed in the city. I had fallen in love with it and have never really left for any extended period of time. I did move from the east side of Montreal to the west side of the mountain, but otherwise uh, Montreal has now been my home for more than half of my life. I work at a CEGEP in Montreal and when I can, I write fiction. I want to begin by asking Talia about the title of collection, Leaving the Island, which implies departure or negotiating borders or boundaries. It comes up in conversation so often about Montreal in, in particular, whether people are going to stay or how long they've been here or how long this particular part of living here they've been on. Can you talk a little bit about the island experience. There's at least one story in your collection that has a couple leave Montreal for some or a variety of the reasons that perhaps maybe you can talk a little bit about. Sure, I feel like it's true. Montreal <laughs> can be a bit of a 
I don't want to say transient, but sometimes, especially in, in English-speaking communities, I think that people do tend to come and go from Montreal and see it as a kind of in-between or a stopgap. I mean, it, it's, it's my home, so for me, I think it was this feeling at some point that I needed to see more of the world, which I think could be quite natural for a lot of people, but it maybe takes one of that particular color when you're from Montreal and you're English, my family is Jewish, and part of my family came as immigrants after World War II, and so there's this whole history of displacement and what is home. So, I mean, there's kind of two parts to what you're asking, because mm. there's, there's the island, this experience of living on islands, which was not really intentional. I didn't really mean to seek out islands, although I guess I love them, but there's this part that's, you know, what is it about Montreal that it doesn't, like, glue you to the spot? Although it does sound like, Tom, you were pretty... Uh, you know, so you, you got kind of personally, brought here. Personally, yeah. I was just thinking how different the city or your relationship to, this, to the city may be if it's your hometown, you know, if it's where you were born and as opposed to if it's the place you, you seek out and mm. you escape to. I mean, I've sort of always thought of myself as an expat, at least for a long time when I mm. first came. Like, this is where I came to live away from you know, to break away and become an adult. It's a ch first chosen city. When you're born here, you don't choose it, right? So um, that probably changes your relationship. But I, I really fell in love with Montreal you know, when I came uh, in the late 80s and um, I've never really fallen out, but I've definitely, it's, my thoughts about it have changed and it's, it doesn't have the same glamour to it that mm. it did when I was 19 years old, but uh, I, I, I still like it. I think you're right that if you come and choose it, I mean, it's. I think it's objectively a very appealing city, mm. but that yeah. when you're 18 and it's the only place you've really lived, everything was about getting out. And also this feeling of maybe there is a lot more to the world. It was just for me being an, an English speaker and like being a minority with a kind of dominant language was such an unusual place to be coming from. And I wanted to know what is the world like well, I didn't even know I wanted to know that. I just knew that I wanted to know what it felt like to be somewhere else and to live a different experience to this one. And, and I think I do have a bit of a love-hate <laughs> relationship <laughs> to Montreal, and I always have. The love kind of seems to win out because it's always pulling me back like a magnet. When I was 19, I went and lived on a Greek island, and that was, that was by chance. And then I ended up living in Australia for 12 years. I justify in the book that that's an island because it's an island continent. So there is something about islands that does draw me, this idea of isolation. And I loved on the Greek island when I was there in winter that you didn't know if the ferries could go or not, come or go. So you didn't know if you could leave and you didn't know if anyone could come in. And to me, that was very appealing, this, this feeling of isolation. And that island of St. Kilda in the book drew me because of its isolation and its impossibility. And this idea of what is home and how you live in seemingly impossible places, because I feel like Montreal is a kind of impossible place to live for a lot of reasons, but it still draws mm -hmm. me and a and, lot of people. And, and you've stayed here all these years, Tom. What's the appeal? I guess aside from having employment, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, which took a while, so that it wasn't, it wasn't really easy to stay. It really had to find a, you know, a career for somebody who's Anglophone and didn't start learning French really till I was 19. So yeah, I really had to make a concerted effort to stay. Of course, I have thought about it a lot. 
it's the the mix Montreal the, the Montreal has the mix of cultures and it leads to little conflicts and big conflicts but those are exciting moments and people have to negotiate all of the time and there's just such a variety and there's always something new you know there's new streams of cultures coming into Montreal all of the time and just bringing new ideas new art forms attitudes fashion so all of those things just make it interesting. And, and that's to, yeah. what writers do, is navigate conflict in whatever genre you choose to do that. There is the aspect of storytelling that sort of requires that some something happen. And it does seem that Montreal has something happening at all times. I think it's also being an outsider. Like mm. for me, one of the things I realized, and I only could know it when I was away from it, when I went to Australia and the dominant language is English, and suddenly I understood people's conversations on buses. Not to say I don't speak French and don't understand. I understood the conversations in Montreal, but because it's my second language, it just didn't go in as deeply. I could sit on a bus and it wasn't falling as deeply. And so it was almost like I could tune out the world around me and be very internal and very kind of an observer and an outsider, which is also what writers do. Mm. And Montreal facilitated that part of me and, and sort of fostered it. And when I left, I realized that it was good and bad this idea of I love that I could get like really interesting work or I could talk to anybody and I was felt like completely at ease and I felt less foreign in a really foreign place at times and I was, thought that was very strange and yet as time went on I realized that part of what I missed was this feeling of being both on the inside and the outside mm. and that Montreal was completely unique in that way that there are not many places in the world like it. I mean, my husband is Australian and he's madly in love with Montreal and with Quebec. And for him, it's like the most exotic, foreign, unusual culture to be able to exist in. Seeing it through his eyes has been fascinating too. Like what snow and winter is, what Francophone culture here is, the film from Quebec he's really interested in. And just looking at it through those eyes mm. is also fascinating for me. And how long have you been back? It's been four years. Mm. Lots of stints back to Australia, yeah. though, I have to admit. Like, I'm always like, when you said that you that you sort of stayed put. You but know. you've been here all those years. And those yeah. critical years, the, the early 90s in the city, uh, people with memories of that might recall what downtown looked like at that time. A lot of boarded up businesses, mm -hmm. uh, et cetera. Hard to get a job as a dishwasher in the city. I say that as someone who... Couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> when I left in 98, that was part of it. it. was like, there's nothing going on here. You know, this feeling that it was shutting down. Hmm. You know, although where I live in the East Plateau, I've noticed on Montreal, there's like a lot of shops shutting down. It, it gave me that feeling of, so the 1980s, mm. early 90s, like, alloway, alloway, alloway. Mm. Like, so many empty shop fronts which is also this feeling of enormous possibility and opportunity, but also potentially not. I feel like there's both in that mix of like, mm. what will rise up out of this? Mm. But I think when you're really young and you're just starting out, on I was like, I have to leave. I have to get out of here. Uh -huh. <laughs> you know, I had that feeling. Yeah. How about you, Tom? You've had friends who've stayed and um, gone and returned? Yeah, well, after McGill, like almost everybody left who uh, I'd met at McGill. Just a couple of us uh, stayed around, and really only one or two are still here, of the people I met, let's say, in 1989, who were students who had come from outside of the city. But we've made a life, and people who left, they often are kind of wistful about what it would have been for them had they stayed. But, uh, you know, you make a decision, and you 
try to you try it out and uh, some people come back to you know they go away and come back but um i've got you know i've gone on long trips and come back but never really like you know packed up everything and drove it out of montreal and, and given up on the city and no plans to do so in the near future uh, in terms of work can you talk a little bit about how your characters navigate realities of living in montreal one of your stories is called uh, La Garderie. Uh-huh. So there, that's something very particular to, I guess, parents of young children in Montreal. Uh, unlike other parts of the country where there is limited uh, subsidies of, of daycares, this is a cultural reality here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the narrator refers to Montreal as the wilderness of this foreign city, in fact. Like, can you talk a little bit about that? It's really a, a, a couple, a Toronto couple, who got caught up in the spell of Montreal, the idea that they'd like to come and try it out. And I think they got into a bit more than they bargained for in a way, because they, they just came with the looking for the myth of Montreal and, and encountered some of the reality of it. Not That's not even, I would say, the central part of the story. And it's not mm. about a major disillusionment, but they just find that there are some difficulties when you're new to a city, especially when there's a culture change. They're also parents of young children. And as the difficulties kind of pile up, they just decide it was a nice visit for yeah. a couple of years, <laughs> but we'll, we're going to be going back to Toronto. But I, it wasn't hard for me to see Montreal through their eyes, you know, being an Anglophone, being somebody who wasn't born here. And yet, I'm not them. Like, mm-hmm. uh, I have been here lo- long enough. I have a different relationship to the city, but I was sort of looking at it through the eyes of someone like that. I think I got the idea for that story. Actually, I was in Toronto at a wedding. I was, it's just sitting beside a stranger and told him I was from Montreal, and, and he had this image of the city. And I thought, you know, if if he moved to Montreal, what would he be in for? And he'd be, he would like it in many ways, but also he'd realize that uh, you have to learn a second language to some extent to be able, especially when you have kids, you got to mm. start really uh, interacting with doctors and daycares and you can't live in your bubble anymore. As we see in the characters in the, in yeah. the story, yeah. as they're living their lives, yeah. the kids have largely produced for them in a way. Mm-hmm. Has your experience been similar to that, Tyler? I mean, you, you're, you mentioned earlier that you are living that vicarious experience of someone new to Montreal, for whom Montreal still has a lot of shine to it. Well, I mean, for me, I'm never new to Montreal exactly. Mm. Because I grew up here, like literally every street corner I walk down practically has some kind of resonance or memory. Mm. And being a teenager in Montreal is probably... I think it's maybe one of the best places on earth to be a teenager, or at least it was for me. Even if I was miserable, Montreal was amazing. It's such a romantic city in that way to wander around at 2 a.m. after going to a bar or to, you know, experience being young in the city. Somehow there's something about the city that I feel like it's so deep in my psyche that I don't know if I can ever look at it with totally fresh eyes, but I have to admit every time I've left and come back, because I keep coming back, it does feel like a slightly different city. Mm. I can never tell, is it the outside or is it the inside, you know? Mm. But I think it's a bit of both. So this time I came back with the young baby. So in a way, I guess I could <laughs> say I'm a bit those, that Toronto couple, but I can't say that either, right? I've mm. got this thing of like, no, this is my home. But then coming back with a baby after 12 years of living in Australia, I mean, that was pretty intense. And it's true that one of the things I came up against was the systems. We can't get a family doctor? What do you mean? But I have a, a five-month-old. Surely I can get a family doctor. And then I remembered all this. I was like a 
flashbacks of like but then again it wasn't exactly flashbacks because I was never properly an adult in Montreal Mm. which is also something that fascinated me because I left really young and I spent most of my adult life in Australia so the systems of you know navigating the garteries navigating medical systems everything that you need to you know and tout en français like suddenly you're like well oh that's not the page not even translated on that website and it's kind of fascinating (laughs) like oh it doesn't exist in english that's okay because i'm in a french city so i had to like recalibrate and be like on the one hand this is the greatest thing about montreal and i have the deepest respect for the way that it holds on to its Mm. identity in that way i find that one of the most thrilling things about this city, and I have so much respect for it. I also love about Montreal the the mix, as as Tom said, this mix. I always hope that that is what is loved by all here. That for me is the thing that I feel keeps its vibrancy. In your poem, the one that you read, the line "It's not the same now that you're dead" and this mm. "you." pronoun being used here to stand in for all the people, not just one singular, mm. but I guess change in the city once you return and the, the things that maybe once gave you a foundation are no longer there, whether they're people or, or, or things. I'm wondering if there are other writers or figures in Montreal that sort of haunt your work in that way. I don't know. You could think I, about that too, Tom. I mean, mm. Like, so are there cool. are there writers that you think about? Uh, there's so many from Montreal. Of course, like and this whole myth of, you know, Mordecai Richler and Leonard Cohen and the fact that they're both Jewish and English from Montreal, I think I have a feeling of them around. Mm. I was an actor as a really young child, like from when I was 10, and I was always acting in like Mordecai Richler films (laughs) or Jacob Tutu meets the Hooded Fang, you know, CBC radio dramas. And I was like his same daughter in a lot of things. And so I had this strange feeling of connectedness Mm. and... With Leonard Cohen as well, I, yeah, I, there's certain things that happened where I was connected to his place of residence or uh, Zen Center, mm. where he was living, where I was at the same time. Or, But do they haunt my writing? Not consciously, mm. but the fact that these people exist and are from the city in this way, maybe. I mean, if I'm lucky, <laughs> they're haunting <laughs> me. <laughs> Any ghosts of Montreal past that work, I guess, in the background? The first thing I think of when I think about that is, I guess, when I do read something that is said in Montreal and uh, how it's portrayed, and then once it's turned into literature or it becomes part of the landscape of a story, it changes the city for me as somebody who lives here, and then maybe a little bit as a writer too, if I come back to that territory again. So if you read a scene that is set on Mount Royal, it alters, I think, the way you think about the mountain Mm. a little bit. So that might turn up again, or you may use that, or it might give you an idea. But as for particular writers, probably not. I mean, I I definitely Mm. am a fan of Leonard Cohen. And he evokes the city in a lot of mm. a lot of his songs and in his novels. It's, it's it's part of you know my imagination. But probably the the most influential writers for me weren't Montrealers. So I prob they probably if you, you know, influence me more than some Montreal writers. But uh, I always read literature set in Montreal with a special interest and emotional connection. I wanted to know how you would translate Montreal to others, and by that I mean these terms that we're all familiar with here that need no explanation Mm. uh, except for say what is a four and a half 
How do you explain that to people even in, in the next door province? To do it quite a bit in yeah. Australia, for sure. I mean, first of all, I would tell people that I was from Montreal and there was a lot of assumptions made that I was from Can I was from Canada, so I'm Canadian and they'd been to Whistler or, you know, mm. or, and then I felt this feeling of like surging up me of like, I'm not from, not that there's anything wrong with Whistler, but I'm not <laughs> from Whistler. Like I'm not from, I'm not even, I'm not Canadian. Like I even started to have this feeling of, I'm not even from Canada. I had this weird thing come up where I suddenly felt this sense of identity where I'm from Quebec. Well, as soon as I was on the outside, and then I had to explain to people why did I feel this way? Like I'm not in depth, you know, all the time, but I sort of had to contextualize. Like whether this strange sense of sense of identity came up, which was odd to me that I suddenly realized I didn't feel Canadian, that I felt that I was from Quebec, and I felt like I had to explain to people what it meant to mm. be from Quebec, and because they didn't really understand my context at all, and I, I would explain that I was from a French place, and first of all, people just didn't believe me. So it was interesting to me mm. that there was a lack of <laughs> knowledge of that Montreal was a, fr a French city in yeah. a French province. And they were like, you have no accent. And then I'd have to explain how I wasn't really French, but that was strange. And then how my school worked, strange again. It was like half of it was French and half of it was English. There was an English side. What do you mean? Mm. <laughs> like they drew a line. And, oh, no. and yeah, the apartments came up. And this the notion politics. of ship. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. It takes a little explaining, to, you know, before you're going to tell somebody a story or tell since I teach Sejap and uh, you, you, you try to tell them what that, is it a more like university, is it more like a high school, it's a bit of both, but neither. And then if you're writing something, you have to ask yourself, okay, how much time and energy do I need to put into sort of subtly explaining what this is for readers that aren't from Quebec? And even more than that is the thing that I thought of first when you mentioned the, the, the question is, the two languages, well, the at least two languages, that is a huge issue, I find, when writing fiction set in Montreal. Because half of the language that any character really would hear is going to be at least, at least half is going to be French. So now how do you represent that in an English novel? At times I feel like you need to be a really proficient bilingual person to really be able to write well about Montreal. It's almost like it's very, you know, you have to have this incredible uh, proficiency in both languages in order to uh, capture the entirety. Otherwise, you're just you're capturing one view or the mm. other view. And I, I feel unqualified to write literature that's set in Montreal often. And yet, I do it because I have to. Because but, it's natural. Yeah. Uh, mm. it's, it's where you live. It's where you're from. It's what you, you would represent. Uh, and interestingly, I was just thinking about your comment about the writer having to be proficient. Mm -hmm. And then, in a sense, too, for the reader it reading sets, that yeah. text set in Montreal, they would also, or if they're not proficient, they would learn these various expressions uh, that are italicized in your short stories. Right? Yeah, well, well, that was, <laughs> that that was, was the publisher's. Okay. Uh, I, yeah, that was the publisher's insistence. Um, he said, that's our style. But I wasn't, it wasn't my first choice because mm. I thought it, it made it too different. Oh, you I know, see. it made it too yeah, special. It attention to it or yeah. it makes it sort of highlights that this is, is that, what, is that what you mean? Yeah, it's not special. It's not like. It's integrated into your daily experience. Yeah. So it doesn't need to be set aside or italicized in that, in that way. Because even as an Anglophone, I frequently use debonair or metro. Right. Where do or, you stop the italicization? <laughs> yeah. You know, 
And you can't italicize it in speech, I guess. I, I suppose you could if you use a sarcastic tone, but that's not what the italics refer right, to. Right, then it gets how to read them. Um, or how, right. and you mentioned this earlier, just in, in a setting, how we understand, how Montrealers understand and refer to the mountain. And then you go to British Columbia. A real mountain. <laughs> and you see a real mountain. Yeah. It, it takes up cultural space here. Mm. But it's interesting that in a way, I think mm. that, that it, it, it struck me, Tom, when you said you didn't feel qualified to, to write about Montreal in one yeah. way, sort of, I think that at the same time, your experience of it or your, you know, whatever way you filter it, it's just that absorption mm. in the culture. I feel like that does, that could translate to others. I mean, I'm sure you, I'm sure you already do write about it. And I think about Mordecai Richler or just sort of being even plunged into one of those worlds is still fascinating. And it's got this kind of Montreal culture sort of, like it permeates it, and I feel like, I feel like that does translate on the outside without mm. explanation somehow. But I understand what you mean about like you feel like half the book would need to be heard in French or read in French. Like, yeah. I can understand that part, but I feel like we also live in these strange solitudes too. I mean, I walk down the street and hear French all the time, and then I realize I go into my apartment, into my small little world, and mm -hmm. we're only speaking in English. You close the door, and then suddenly, it's a different world. Mm -hmm. But it is an outside world that has. June 24th holiday and then a week later a July 1st holiday where for folks in Montreal or in Quebec it's no big deal to see moving trucks lined up a block because of this practice we have here mm. of generally moving, moving on July One 1st day, and that's yeah. what you do that day if you're going to move that's generally the day it happens and that's mm -hmm. also gets culturally embedded in in our understanding of calendar mm. years mm -hmm. it's true I think you were starting to say this, Talia. Like, I think you do need to trust the reader that they're going mm. to, they're going to figure it out. And if they, and if it's not essential to like the the plot, mm. it's because uh, we're, you know, if, if I read uh, Dostoevsky, like, there's, I'm sure there are a lot of little things that are very different from my experience, but it doesn't prevent me mm. from understanding the novel and enjoying so the novel. Yeah. So it's maybe even part of the charm of it. So mm. every culture has its own identity and differences and uh, I know as a writer I'm having to remind myself to uh, trust the reader you know and mm -hmm. not just in this way but in a lot of different ways like don't underestimate you mm. know, your reader so I felt like I struggled with that a little bit in the in the book of poetry that was all these geographies and it's sort of how much are you explaining how much are you leaving out what makes it potent and relevant all these different places I had a very particular connection and then how are you translating that mm -hmm. through literature because you know, for someone else, maybe the section on Melbourne, Australia, you know, St. Kilda in that neighborhood, is it the particularities and quirks of that neighborhood? What, what is that to someone in Montreal? Mm. And, and I guess really good writing transcends that. Leaving the Island. We've all gone now, left the place to the sheep and the gannet, the puffin and the wren. For decades, only a mailboat of whalebone and oak came and went from here. Then the tourists arrived to see if we were more than myth in the outer Hebrides. We sold them tweed and spotted bird's eggs, let them look in on prayer meetings, count the stones in the walls we built to keep out the weather. When we prayed, it was for a cease to things, the wind, the war, 
the plagues. In the end, the land choked us out. Carcasses of seabirds and layers of peat moss turned to lead. The constant fog, the solitude, the slippery grass by the cliff's edge, that impossible winter of 1929. We left our Bibles open and handfuls of oats on the floor, locked our doors behind us. From this vantage point, our home was just a sketch of land that shrank into the sea, the island's sharp crags impossible to understand. This land, so angry and so peaceful now without us. The feral sheep bleat into the evening, nothing to bother them but old age and the wind that made us all walk like bent trees. The piece I'm going to read is a couple of pages from early in my new novel called Where I Wanted to Be. The main character's name is Will. It's been the first year on his job and, and he's sitting down to, to hear what his boss thinks about his first year on the job. Will tapped the doorframe with his knuckles. Roy always gave him the impression that he had just glanced at a business handbook. He often said the right things, especially at the beginning of a meeting, but somehow his words did not feel sincere, and his polite smile, as far as Will was concerned, was worse than no smile at all. How are the boys? They're good. Yours are grown up, aren't they? Flown the nest. Ah, that'll come. Trying to enjoy the moment while it lasts. Yes, I hope so. Well, Roy reached for a yellow folder on the corner of his desk. As he opened it, Will saw his name hand-printed in blue ink. So, said Roy, shall we? Sure. What do you think of the first year? It's flown by, my God. It has, said Will. He straightened up quickly and then slouched again. There's been a lot to learn. I've enjoyed it. I like the job and the challenges. I feel I've worked hard, quite hard, actually. I'd like to be more efficient, but I think that'll come. I don't want to be too hard on myself, but I always want to continue to improve. Roy was smiling at him, occasionally nodding his head and twinkling his eyes. Will tried to avoid the temptation to interpret these facial phenomena. He went on, I think I've got up to speed pretty quickly. It takes time, of course. Roy had a script to get back to. He nodded impatiently. Each nod had the effect of throwing Will's previous sentence over his shoulder. What pile was he putting them in? Irrelevant dribble? Excuses? Nonsense? Will forged on, attempting to be honest and thorough. Roy's expression tightened into an amused smile, which lingered for a moment and then disappeared. He had decided against the smile. He sat back in his chair. He was finished with listening, and so Will concluded, striving for a positive and confident note, expressing his hopes for a productive second year. Roy waited for a moment for Will's words to dissipate in the air. They were such insubstantial words. Then Roy said, this is a very established company. We are constant. We fit into the niche. It's narrow, but we are there. No one has heard of us, but they use our products. We don't grow, we don't shrink, we just keep running. Will wondered where Roy could be headed. Not growing, not shrinking, running. Had he helped them run? Did Roy now want to grow? Was this leading to praise or criticism? And we are a lean company, said Roy, showing Will what he meant by lean, holding his palms three centimeters apart. We are successful because we are lean. 
We don't have overlap and redundancy. We don't put too many chefs in the kitchen to argue about how to boil an egg. We have one chef. Eggs. Do it. Will nodded. Inside, he grew worried. Had he tried to put too many chefs in the kitchen? Had he not boiled the eggs? Coincidentally, he and Karen had an ongoing debate about boiled eggs. She thought he did not boil them long enough, and he thought she boiled them too long. For half a second, he entertained the idea of sharing this anecdote with Roy. Leaving off his analogy, Roy tapped his desk to the beat of his words. We need everyone to do their job. How could Will not nod? Now Roy began to speak explicitly about Will. I'm not sure, he said, that you had quite the project manager experience that you suggested when you applied. Will wasn't sure that he had heard properly, or if he had, maybe he needed to wait to get a better sense of what exactly Roy was implying. We needed someone who would step in and boom, just do the job. But you haven't. I've had to hold your hand way, way more than I expected. I pay you to do your job. I don't pay you so I can do your job. This was not at all what Will had expected to hear. He was prepared for criticisms, but not to be accused of falsifying his job application and being incapable of doing his job. Roy himself seemed a little surprised by his own words. He began to turn red. He'd been holding in these frustrations for months, and now that they were discussing Will's job performance, he couldn't help but let them out. Will felt himself growing angry as well. For a moment, he was on the verge of letting go and expressing his own true feelings about Roy, about how critical he'd been all year, how unsupportive, how impossible to please, not to mention how wrong he was. His observations, opinions, interpretations, judgments were so often off the mark. Will wanted his anger to burst out. He anticipated a glorious relief, but finally his anger was restrained. And soon Roy was tempering his comments. Will exhaled and recomposed himself. He felt relieved that he had not lost his temper and said something he might regret. How do you survive as a writer here? In all of this, like, I, I mean, we all do it in job. our way. You know, we all have, uh, we, we do creative fundraising, I suppose, have the day job at the CEGEP. Yeah. Uh, it's an interesting ongoing struggle. I don't know how interesting, because it's somewhat predictable. <laughs> Maybe it's a really boring ongoing struggle. I mean, right now I work for the Ministry of Education, summarizing children's books and young adult fiction, so I just get to read a lot of fantastic books and write summaries for a, a website that they have, a, basically a literacy website, which is fantastic. I mean, I also work in theater, which is another pretty much unpaid uh, <laughs> position I have. It's great. Um, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, grants or something, trying to creatively fundraise, as you say, getting bits and pieces of jobs. But it's, it's, I don't feel like it's something that's just solved. Also, I don't write novels. I always, I always have like fiction envy that somehow that must be like any time you tell someone that you're, well, if you tell someone that you're a poet, they're like, oh, (laughs) there's no way out of that, right? This is probably true just for any, wherever you live, though, like making a living as an artist, unless, yeah, you happen to be one of the very few novelists that 
sells thousands of copies of your book. That is true. It's not Montreal specific. Mm. In fact, often people say Montreal is easier because it's the cost of living right. is less, et cetera, et cetera. So even though there isn't as much of a giant job pool, people survive on less. And there are more artists probably that are here for that reason. I mean, yeah. I hope that's still true of Montreal. I know it's changing a bit. The cost true. of various neighborhoods might reflect mm -hmm. uh, the uh, ratio of artistic population in them. It would be interesting to do a study of Montreal over the decades to see where that artistic community is yeah. uh, gravitating. Yeah, where yeah. the artistic community went and then yeah. like, made it really vibrant, <laughs> gentrified. Exactly. Yeah, yeah they're <laughs> just, that's what I was going to say. And then <laughs> that seems to be the pattern. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, for sure. I remember when I was living in Sydney, it's the cost of living is just astronomical and mm. it's a big topic of conversation. That's mm. one thing that was a big relief to get back here was that you mm. could live somewhere quite beautiful for not enormous amount and that it wasn't just the topic of conversation wasn't all about that and but I remember there was one art center that had opened uh, they were given free space because there was a development of this beautiful old brewery and they were given it for four years and then they were going to have to give it back because then this development would be finished and part of the intent with the developers was that they would bring artists into the neighborhood so I think it's a known fact that artists up the value of neighborhoods and then have to leave mm -hmm. <laughs> that sounds terrible. <laughs> We're doing a many positive things, not just driving ourselves out of neighborhoods. I know, but the fact of living in Montreal also means navigating the problematics of living here, which we've kind of done in this conversation. <laughs> like, uh, but there's always, uh, I wanted to, to, to translate this term, I mean, pastigate. Do you remember that? The Pastigate. Oh, yeah, it was oh, a couple yes. of years ago, but it, but there are always language issues that arise mm. through no you know fault of our own. It just they, they it gets regulated or mm. observed and regulated. Yeah, uh, the idea of language police was very interesting to mm. people in Australia. Hmm. That was something that did come up. They they could not believe that I was telling the truth <laughs> about that. That I hadn't just made up that I was living in some kind of state where it was, you know, a police state. I was like, it's not like that. It's just trying to protect a language that could disappear in a sea, a massive sea of English, which is pretty legitimate. But it, it's such a delicate thing to mm -hmm. navigate this idea of language and and how you preserve it in this. I mean, it, being situated where we are is a massive challenge. I think that it's okay to be critical, too, of when that goes too far. Mm. You know, I think that it's very important that, that Montreal or that Quebec doesn't become super insular. From having left so much, I come back and I go, this is an extraordinary place. And, and that's the only fear I sometimes get, mm -hmm. is this feeling of, is it becoming too insular by protecting itself so much that then there's something that doesn't become life-giving in that. I feel like when I left, it was almost like there was this whole struggle with identity here, and now I feel like there's so much more strength in identity, but then it's a question of, is, does it atrophy a bit by this kind of holding on, um, by the nitty-gritty details, you know, of like pasta. Mm. And, even, <laughs> and even though we, you know, being Anglophones to that threatening mm -hmm. world outside of Quebec, I wonder if we get suffocated in the middle, you know, as uh, Quebec culture at times, there's a force, a movement to protect itself. If we're inside that sometimes and mm -hmm. we get kind of separated and uh, stifled, I don't know, maybe stifled is too strong of a word, but cut mm -hmm. off in some ways. And uh, 
a lot comes with that, you know, good, yeah. good and bad and distinct. And uh, is English writing from Quebec distinctive from English writing in, mm. uh, from the rest of Canada? And I didn't get a lot of reviews of uh, my short story collection, but a few. Mm. And, and uh, <laughs> they came, a couple came from Toronto, and, and one reviewer thought that he was sensing a kind of Montreal vibe mm. uh, about the book. And I, mm. I was a bit surprised um, mm. about that. But um, no, I think about it a lot, though, this idea of being... Are you being stifled? Are you being too isolated? And or is it like interesting art comes from the fringes? You know, this idea of that you're being kind of you're pushed into this kind of fringe in a way as an English speaker mm. here. And yeah, I've I've often sat with that. You know, if I lived in New York City, would would something unfold differently artistically in terms of just the reach you have or what you can do? Or and then sometimes I find that the isolation here, the insular kind of feeling. Yeah, insular can be quite fascinating for what it incubates. Mm. So it's like, I have this push-pull, obviously, with this place. Mm -hmm. And I think it's hard not to consider these things or be a bit critical of it. Or at least I feel like I am, maybe because of this coming and going, that I kind of have this like very conscious feeling of what is it when you're completely immersed and this is your your reality. When when you leave and go to Toronto, Mm -hmm. you know, is it just sh- you know sharper edged and does that make you into like a sharper writer or I just I, I think about that sometimes mm-hmm. you know like when I was living in Sydney I mean that's such a sharp city like in terms wow. of like the, the corporate and the go-getting and the you know and then there's also very unusual art coming from there and I sometimes think people were making art out of the struggle of it's so expensive it's so hard it's so edgy and there was some fascinating stuff that would come out of that sort of being pushed how about um, reception of your art? Because you've created art in Australia and created art here. Do you find, have you ever done like this, maybe, the, I mean, it might even be easier with theater. Like, but it Do you notice is. different reactions? Have you ever yeah. done the same piece in both countries? Absolutely. Yeah. I, with theater, there's a piece that I created in Sydney that we did ah. there, and it just went really well. Like, we just kept getting invited to tour this piece. And then when I did it in in Montreal, it kind of just disappeared. But we only did it for four nights at Théâtre La Chapelle, and it got a really nice review in the Devoir, which I was really like, that for me was wonderful uh-huh. to get this crossover. I mean, mm. it was completely in English, the show. So I thought that was an amazing thing to have come out of it. But for sure, it was very different. Uh, I think the sensibilities of different countries, too. Sometimes uh, what a country is missing, or what, because I found in Australia, like, because a lot of the pieces were really, really dark, quite literary and quite dark. And it was almost like that's what the country was like, it was a bit of a gap where they were like, yeah, we need this. We need this dark, literary, strange thing. And maybe in Canada, it's more, hmm, like, that's a bit Maybe we dark. need less, maybe of, we need less <laughs> of that dark, <laughs> literary, strange Interesting. thing. Yeah. Interesting. It could yeah. even be partly, uh, not even just country, but venue. Like, I've noticed, mm. you know, you read at this place, at a bar, on this street, as opposed to maybe, like, the Blue Met, or, mm. or as opposed to in this classroom, mm. and you can get totally different responses. That's true. Like, Audiences, that's yeah. true. The, the context or something. I find that a lot with poetry. That, mm-hmm. But yeah. I feel like with poetry, it's less uh, apparent, the differences. Although what you say, I, I agree with. A really intimate space, or a really young crowd, or really kind of more kind of festival crowd at very different vibes of how work is received. It's true. Inside the Frozen Mammoth 
is created by the Association of English Language Publishers of Quebec and features writers published by our members. Interviews by Marianne Couture. Technical production and editing by Jess Glavina. Anna Leventhal is the executive producer. Original music by Pamela Hart. Cover art by Adam Waito. Thanks to the Canada Council for the Arts for supporting this project. For more information, visit aelaq.org.